guess, an unfamiliar voice. Bick Nazar filling in for Jamie Dodd <laughs> with uh, Thomas Drance uh, for the next hour here on the Canucks Hour. Welcome. Uh, Welcome you. to yeah. the Canucks Hour again, Bick. It's your second go-round. You crushed it the first time. We're happy to have you back. Thanks for filling in for our old pal, oh, Jamie. Absolutely. You know, when, when they call and they're like, hey, can you do a show with Thomas Drance? I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where do I uh, run to? <laughs> Where do I submit my resignation? Um, (laughs) Well, thanks for thanks for joining. It's going to be a good show. We got a lot to discuss somehow. Look, when you have two people on the show, uh, I would say that means you have one hundred percent capacity on the show, which is uh, a good theme for 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 what's going on today as well. That is good news. That is good news. I cannot wait to hear a full building cheer for a goal again. I know it's only been two months, like since that Columbus game. But the atmosphere of that Columbus game, which was the last time Rogers Arena was packed to the gills as the Canucks stormed back against the Blue Jackets, like, it was such a good vibe in here. It was such a good night out, even to be, you know, working that game. The idea that it's coming back and soon, which was announced by the provincial powers that be uh, today, don't have an exact date for when it returns, but it seems likely, right, that the next time the Canucks play a home game, we'll be back filled into Rogers Arena, I can't wait. Bring it, that, give it, that, to, give it to me, man. That Columbus game still resonates. Uh, the Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. By the way, being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Uh, I'm broadcasting from my home in Coquitlam. You are at Rogers Arena, uh, fresh off of a uh, the, the way you described it to me, a rigorous practice. It was a grueling practice, I'd say. 30 minutes of drills that were effectively bag skates. Like, for me, they were bag skates without with pucks, right? Like a bunch of two-on-o drills where after you skate the length of the ice, you then have to go back as a trail group behind another group that's starting. Uh, and then a three-on-one drill that was completely ridiculous in terms of how much it tested players' stamina, it, you know, you're back checking your you have to go three times basically until you rotate out and like guys were getting cheers the last guy to go three times was Vasily Podkolzin and the players on the team were legitimately cheering like way to go pods like finish it up strong like they were legitimately being supportive because of how grueling it was don't see that too often on NHL ice took half an hour of what effectively looked like conditioning skate drills before Boudreaux met with the group huddled up at the whiteboard and following, you know, 30 minutes of, of bag skates by another name, you can imagine there were more players taking a knee to, to listen to Boudreaux speak than there usually are. I'd say 50% more guys uh, on their knees than usual uh, as the club met and, and detailed a bunch of battle drills. So then they did about a half hour worth of battle drills uh, of varying do, uh, varieties in the second half of practice. Didn't look like it, it looked like an engaging practice. The effort level was high. The intensity level was high. But it didn't look like a particularly fun practice. It looked like a work practice, which makes sense considering that the team has four days off between games, right? We've seen Boudreaux do this a few times. He's navigated a few lengthy pauses in the schedule to this point. But this in particular looked like a conditioning-focused practice following a day off. As the club looks to gear up for a game on Thursday, they still have another practice day tomorrow. Um, some other news and notes. I'm about to report this on Twitter, so fresh intel for for our listeners. 
Sounds like Noah Juleson, who was absent from practice, has been reassigned back to the AHL Canucks. Showed well in limited action, I think. I think there's Mm -hmm. some interest in seeing how he can continue to develop based on the size, the range, the foot speed, the obvious athleticism. Club's been really happy with the work ethic. I think he's not convinced anyone that that, that maybe there's more there than they thought, but he's certainly showed well. Like, I think there's interest in seeing if he can continue to grow, particularly considering his pedigree and how hard he's worked to put a really brutal facial fracture injury uh, behind him from a couple years ago. So uh, a good showing by Juleson, but he's been reassigned back to the American League. Probably a good sign if you're if you're hopeful to see Quinn Hughes on Thursday, though, right? Uh, yeah. Additionally, I mean, ad- <laughs> well, just, sorry, just quickly go. on Juleson, it's like that's what happens when you get guys that are traitsy, right? They 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 just have natural like traitsy. Why he was like a cousin of Toolsy. Yeah, there's a reason why he was a first round pick, right? And opportunity injuries, all this sort of stuff, and he has natural athletic ability now it's just hey can you provide him with enough vertical mobility to get into the lineup which in this team there's a lot more runway to try to get into the lineup than there was in Montreal and also just yeah okay I don't know if this solves anything but it's interesting to just keep exploring what he is yeah and and absolutely it is I think he's given himself a shot to be the type of defenseman that to be honest with you both uh, Jim Rutherford and Canucks assistant general manager Derek Clancy have sort of made a habit of pursuing on the trade market, right? Th- those types of traitsy, toolsy, whatever you want to say, athletic, high pedigree defensemen who sort of flatlined in their development for whatever reason. You think of Justin Schultz, you think of Mike Matheson, you think of Marcus Pedersen. You know, there's a pretty long lineage of this type of player. And one does sort of wonder if Juleson can be like a Canucks in-house version of that right off the hop. I don't know that he showed enough to in his short stint at the NHL level to sort of blow the doors down and earn like a longer look right now while the club is still scraping for every point trying to make the playoffs. But I do think in a world where the Canucks sell some pieces after the deadline, we could see him get a, a longer run and a longer run that would be watched with keen eyes by Canucks management. Additionally, Matthew Highmore... Absent from practice, he was on the COVID protocol list a long time ago, right? Like, at this point, we'd have expected him back. His levels are still too high, and that hasn't permitted him to join the full group just yet. He's been able to get in some time on his own, so he's at least skating again. And he's been activated onto the roster paper-wise. So, Highmore's out of protocol and back on the roster. Club is hopeful that he'll join him for practice tomorrow. That's that's your fresh intel from me uh, about to tweet that. As we speak, so those are your news. That's your news and notes from practice, uh, Bick. With Juleson going down, right? That's that would seem to open a spot for the club mm-hmm. to have Quinn Hughes back in the lineup by Thursday. And thank goodness, right? Like I, I just don't have a ton of interest watching this team play without Quinn Hughes. I'm uh, I far prefer it, even though of course it's my job. Like I far prefer it from a enjoying my job every day standpoint when I get to watch Quinn Hughes do Quinn Hughes things. So Quinn Hughes looks like he'll be back in this lineup on Thursday. And, you know, obviously a huge boost for the club. I I am curious, though, to know where he's ultimately going to slot. So the Canucks practiced today, and they rolled out pairs that have OEL and Myers as their top pair. No surprise. Burroughs and Hamannick, who played together against the Toronto Maple Leafs, skated as the second pair in line rushes. 
The third pair featured Brad Hunt, a, a fellow lefty with a skill set that somewhat approximates Quinn's, right? And somewhat approximates. I mean, that's probably I'll, that's I'll probably that a little slide. generous. That's probably I know a little what you generous. Mean, so I'll let that one slide. He's he's a lefty who you know moves the puck, yes. right? Um, <laughs> and uh, my my skill set somewhat approximates shorties, I guess, right? <laughs> not not exactly in the same realm, but. Nonetheless, and then Luke Shen on his right side. Is Hunt a Hughes placeholder? Or is it possible that this club could go back to Hughes-Hamanick, which was the last time Hughes and Hamanick were both available to this coach the way that they lined up, right? The two games to start Boudreaux's tenure, Hughes-Hamanick before Hamanick went down with injury. Do they go back to that? Is it possible that after being... In my estimation, Vancouver's most effective defenseman against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Is it possible that Burroughs ends up being the guy to draw out when 43 gets back? It's it's weird, too, because it's... I, I think you do the exercise of who do you want to play Hughes with first, right? And then and then you can figure out, okay, who, who comes out, obviously. Right. And to me, it's... I think logically, it makes the most sense to put Hughes with Hamannick. And that's something we saw, obviously, prior to Hamannick being out of the lineup, is those two guys go together. And, and as much as people like Hughes and Shen together, and I, I do like that as well, like there was a moment when they put Pullman with Hughes and said, hey, let's try this out and let's see how this works instead of Luke Shen. So I just kind of look at that and I say, hey, maybe the... Uh, again, we're going to go back to Traitsy here for a second, but that natural, like, hey, he can move a bit better than Luke Shen. It makes the most sense to go Hughes with Hamannick. And then what that means for the person coming out, I again, I just look at usage and, and the way they get kind of described. I know Burroughs played a little bit less than Brad Hunt on, on Saturday, but I, I think the way Kyle Burroughs has kind of stood up to, for his teammates and, and done the, the quote-unquote tough things, I, I feel like it's tougher to get him out of the lineup. Yeah, I mean, I would not... For me, I actually would go so far as to say that Burroughs has been, aside from Tyler Myers the righty I'd keep in the lineup ahead of all others this season, based on his form this season, and especially after that game against Toronto, where I thought he was really good. Like, I thought he was one of the most disciplined... I thought he was the most disciplined Canucks defenseman at executing the type of game plan that the Canucks clearly leaned into against the Leafs, in terms of being really careful about the pucks that you get out of your end, in terms of taking zero chances on the breakout, in terms of separating opponents from pucks, and I thought he held up really well despite playing a lot of head-to-head matchup, uh, head-to-head minutes against the Matthews line with a partner who I just don't think was quite at his at the top of his game considering his long layoff prior to that contest. Uh, you know, I thought Burroughs was basically in a 15-minute fire drill and and kept his kept 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 his head about him. Uh, significantly. I thought he was a huge part of why the Canucks were able to limit the damage and, in fact, not surrender a goal at all at 5-on-5 against a Maple Leafs team that came to play and and significantly outclassed the Canucks on form if if ultimately not on the scoreboard. So, yeah, I mean, Burroughs Burroughs is an everyday player for me at this point on this team. Um, So is Luke Shen, to be totally honest with you, right? Which poses some pretty difficult questions about what lies ahead for Travis Hamanick and for Tucker Pullman when he returns from, you know, his uh, apparent head injury, right? So, you know, I, I do sort of wonder too, like, if you're a team in the Canucks' shoes, 
do you need to, to some extent, look ahead a little bit and, and give Hamannick some burn in your top four just so he can find his game, just so that he can maybe be an asset, just so maybe you can have some options in terms of what to do on the right side. I sort of think that's something you kind of have to consider at this point, even if Hughes Shen feels like something that should be a fixture for this club at the moment. Well, it, it's it's safe versus upside, I think, right? I think right. Hughes and Shen, to me, is just safe, and it's like, yeah, okay, that can work. But it, it still goes back to the context of what are you trying to accomplish this season? Right, like we can sit here and intelligently say, "All right, they're on pace for 84 points. It, it might not mean a whole lot what this next game looks like, but you know, to, to tell that to players on February 17th, say, hey, that San Jose game, it's not really that important to you. That, that's not that's, that's not a thing. Coaches are going to act that same way too. So, what are you trying to actually achieve in what the scope is of your season coming up to, uh, I guess, in theory, an important game as far as you know it's game 50 here you go are you ready to do this and I, I would look at that and say a coach is going to put a someone that meets a baseline and what can explore the best upside and to me Hughes and Hamannick explores that upside yeah yeah it does but it's not that Shen and Hughes are safer I don't think necessarily I just think their results are better like that's been the better pair for the Canucks and yet I mean, I do think you need to do what you can to resuscitate Hamannick's value around the league, right? He's only played 10 games this season. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do think there's an important... If you want to have options with Hamannick this offseason, I do think he needs to just log games. Like, he needs to play. And ideally, he needs to play pretty well. Uh, but when you look through how Vancouver's various configurations on the back end have performed this season... You know, there's not a ton of question that um, Shen Hughes has basically been their best regular pair. Like, among Canucks defense pairs that have played at least 100 minutes, they are number one almost across the board by by whatever metric you prefer. You know, the equivalent with Hamannick um, has, you know, has performed far, like, less effectively, uh, albeit in, in about 78 minutes versus, you know, 250 so I mean, not exactly an apples to apples comparison based on sample size, but Shen and Shen and Hughes together have been really effective, like really, really effective. They've you know outscored their opponents eight to four, right? With with Hughes and Shen on the ice at five on five, two hundred thirty three minutes. I mean, that's a huge deal for a team that struggles to build goal difference at five on five, right? Uh, the with Hughes and Hamonic, it's been you know, one and one. So uh, they're even, not not bad either, but really low event. You kind of hope to get more offense when Hughes is on. Not that Shen himself provides it, but certainly um, that pair has been, I think, Vancouver's best pair on the season. Uh, do you really want to go ahead, uh, go away from that when you've got a pair of games against some California opponents that, you know, we say it's a big game. I mean, I, I think the... Canucks playoff chances have reached pie in the sky territory personally, but that doesn't change the fact that these are two teams the Canucks are chasing in the playoffs and they kind of need mm-hmm. to have these four points. Uh, are you really not going to rock your best defense pair this season in those games? It's 
It's especially tough, too, because, like, the only game you really have a sample for Hammerdick and Hughes under Bruce Boudreaux is the L.A. game. And that also happens to be Boudreaux's first game, coming off a new coach, and you're getting everyone inspired, and then he gets hurt after, I think it was 11, 12 minutes in that Bruins game. It's You're looking at a one-game sample. So you're just kind of going to go back to, well, we played Hammerdick and Hughes when I first arrived, and naturally this is what I'll do, despite, as everything that you laid out, hey, a lot of success there. Uh, coming out of the last taste, seven, eight weeks of Hughes and Shen that we've seen, it, it would be to me the, again, I, I go to the safer option, not necessarily just because it's you know, statistically safe. It's just, hey, we've seen this kind of work in the here and now, but first impressions go a long way. First impressions of Boost Brujo was Hamnick and Hughes. That's what happened here. Right. Yeah, fair enough. Um Boudreaux, by the way, today on the Zoom, which is happening basically concurrently with our with our broadcast, noted that with 12 weeks left in the season, right, if they win all 12 weeks, that's 12 games above 500, and that could give them a chance to make the playoffs. So 33 games remaining, we're talking about points or wins in 22 of 33, right? That's basically 12 games above 500, right? Is, is it not? Am I, am I doing that math wrong? Uh, tw- sorry, 22 wins in 33, that would be 11 games above 500, but... Right, okay, so we're yeah. talking about 23 and 10 is is the... Or 20... Yeah, 23 and 11, excuse me, oh my goodness. 20, 22... Bic, I'm, 22 I'm plus here. 11 is 33. Struggling here, I'm not the math guy. <laughs> Am I the stats guy? I hope I'm not the stats guy. Anyway... 22 wins of 33 would be 22 and 11, so you'd be 11 games above 500. So 22 and 11, okay. Uh, and then, and then you need so you need to go twenty three and ten. So it's really thirteen games above five hundred. But let's just let's just go uh, with yeah. um, let's go with uh, twenty two ten and one. How about that? There and you go. so uh, twenty two ten and one would give you ninety five points. That se- seems like it's probably where the playoff bar is going to be, right? Like that's yeah. even right that. Now Edmonton's is... on pace for ninety four point five. Ninety four. So there you go. Yeah. So 94.5. So round up. <laughs> and yeah. the point being, the point being, you know, when I say pie in the sky and fans respond with, they're only five points out. It's like the projected playoff bar to get there. You know, you need to use Bruce Boudreaux's super wholesome and enjoyable. And it sounds doable, even though it's wild. Win the week, every week formation. And even then you're just in with a chance Right, like even then, you're just in with a chance. You're not in. You're not rock solid, and so you know I do think it's important to keep that in mind and ground all discussions about this team, particularly as we go into discussions about what this trade deadline should and could look like for this club, within that reality. Right, within the reality that it's going to take something pretty miraculous at this point for this team to get there. And as good as they've performed under Bruce Boudreau. This is also a team that, since the calendar flipped to 2022, has not at any point won... Oh, sorry, has only at one point won two games in a row, right? They, they beat uh, Washington and Nashville at the tail end to salvage that southeastern trip. And other than that, it's been win-loss, 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 loss-loss-loss, win-loss, 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 right? Like, they haven't been able to sustain momentum, which I think also adds to the pressure, or not the pressure, but certainly the importance... Of this game on Thursday against the Sharks, they need to begin to string wins together, and they need to be doing that yesterday, right? Like, it needs it, to happen it right like, now. 
It feels like they may have missed their window a little bit, if, if you wanted to entertain the playoff conversation. Because two things happened simultaneously when they made that run from December into January. Because it wasn't just that they were having success. It was that they were having success and all the teams that they needed to lose lost. Calgary dipped. Edmonton dipped. Dallas was treading water. All these things were went right simultaneously as the Canucks improved. And even after all of this, you look at this spot right now, and again, we're trying to get to 94 points, 95 points. Vancouver's on pace for 84. So there's still that 10-point gap you have to overcome. And now you look at this as like, Calgary has stabilized their season. Edmonton has stabilized their season to some degree. And those teams are now back on pace for a traditional 94-point wildcard average. Whereas three weeks ago, the playoff bar was sitting at 89, 90, 91. And you could entertain that idea of, hey, it's a lower number. We can sneak in. Well, now you're back to, to, to normal. And it just makes that task so much tougher because, as you said, you weren't, you weren't stacking wins upon wins on each other. You weren't winning the week per Boudreaux often enough. I also want desperately, Bick. Like this is this is my new hobby horse. Like sort the NHL standings by point percentage, twenty twenty two. That is my campaign slogan. Like sort the NHL standings by point percentage. I don't want to hear about the Calgary Flames chasing down the Vegas Golden Knights when they have a better point percentage than the Vegas yeah. Golden Knights. It's it's Vegas that's chasing down Calgary, even though they have a point, uh, more than a point, uh, or sorry, one point up on them. The Flames have three games in hand. Like, all they need is an overtime loss in the next three games, and they will be based on the tiebreaker, which they, uh, which they, well, they're, which they'd hold if they had an overtime loss. Um, they, they, they're ahead of them. It's Calgary. The, the, the Pacific standings are Calgary, Vegas, LA, Edmonton, like Anaheim, Anaheim, San San Jose, Jose, and then Vancouver. You know, it's not. I've, I've started doing my own standings, to be honest, and in my own yeah. spreadsheets, just but, because but, it's, it's just it's just easier that way. We're only two years removed from when the NHL determined playoff seeding based off of point percentage, right? So while the season is live, like we have this super powerful precedent, sort the NHL standings by point percentage, twenty twenty two. I don't want to hear five points out. They're not prorated over eighty two games. They're eleven points out. Right, like that is the that is the bar they have to clear. If you want to be clear headed and realistic about where this team's at and the steep hill they're trying to climb, that's that's the that's the level. I'm not saying they're not going to do it. Well, I'm saying they're not likely to do it, but I'm not going to say they're not going to do it because you've got Thatcher Demko. You're in every game. We saw that this weekend. But you know the hill is awfully steep. It's it's not just a hill. It's it's Everest. It's it's a Himalayan mountain here, and. Oh. Summiting it, summiting it is improbable in the extreme at this point. We need to ground this conversation there because so many times, you know, you talk about deadline and selling and what's the right approach for this club. And the response is, you know, you owe it to this group to see how far they can take it. And I think there's some extent to which that's true, but I don't see how you need to see too much more before understanding clearly where this club is going and how much they need to get on track. We also saw a practice today, uh, no changes as far as the lineup. A, a winning lineup, you, you, you stay true to it. Obviously, we know Quinn Hughes is going to get inserted at some point. But the, the main takeaway is uh, Miller, Horvat, Besser remains intact, which, hey, it's not a one-game experiment just because it's a big opponent coming to town or something like that. Let's see this kind of give a bit of a runway here and see what this actually this trio does together. 
I mean, I loved the their game. I thought that was by far Vancouver's best line in a game in which they were territorially dominated on Saturday. Particularly thought that JT Miller, um, JT Miller had his best defensive game for me, especially when you consider how much of it he played without the puck in a Canucks uniform on Saturday against the Leafs. He was so good at in in a single sequence separating an opponent from the puck and making the smart outlet that got them that line attacking against the grain because one thing that should be said about that Leafs game is as good as Demko was and 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 as true as it is that the Leafs got goalied the Leafs goalie was also good like Jacob Mrazek the Canucks had chances against the grain it's not like they didn't have opportunities to score they did they had really good opportunities and that line in particular was really disciplined about just staying in position playing possum parking the bus uh you know jose Mourinho smiling watching the game on, oh, on the television somewhere but but seriously right like <laughs> they hit them on the counter effectively it was it was yeah. uh it, you know Mourinho would have given that his stamp of approval and particularly that line they were particularly good at it I think also when you look at it in your mind's eye, you know, you give Brock Besser and JT Miller, we know that that works. Besser is sort of a shoot-first guy with some playmaking ability, but Miller is, you know, a particularly dynamic playmaker. And surrounding Horvat with those two, I think, helps accentuate some of what Horvat does really well, which is attacking off the rush, um, you know, controlling play below the hash marks, just being really hard to play against in terms of his ability to retrieve pucks and protect pucks and, and maintain the cycle while also taking some of the onus off, off of him to distribute something that, you know, I, I don't think like people get way too worked up about that aspect of his game. He is not a tunnel vision player by any means, but he's not as, as dynamic a playmaker as he is a goal scorer, right? Or as he is a battle winner. And I do think that that calibration on that line makes a ton of sense. I thought I thought we sort of saw proof of concept of how they can control a game without the puck on Saturday as they go up against some opponents that maybe aren't quite as uh, imposing territorially speaking as the Maple Leafs are, especially in the coming week. I'm really curious to see what that line can do and if they can begin to string some heavy shifts together. If they do, they're going to score. Yeah, especially, you know, these next couple of games here, San Jose, Anaheim, Seattle, it'd be interesting to see those guys, again, all three games paired together, how that translates into, for what you're talking about, their territorial advantage and just actual production, right? This is a loaded up line to look at and say, hey, we're giving you a chance to be the leaders of this team, both production and time on ice. And also, if we're going to entertain this crazy notion of getting back to the playoffs, it's going to be through our best players. Here's your chance to do it against Pacific Division opponents. All the way through, you know, Calgary also on deck here. New York, New Jersey, New York, the Islanders. Uh, you go through that road trip. So I'd like to see a nice little runway here. Uh, but it does also entertain the conversation, Durant, is uh, your best players playing together and there's also some trade conversations around these guys all playing together as well. We'll, we'll talk about that on the other side. Are they being showcased together? Is that no? Here? Come on. <laughs> we'll talk about it on the other side here at the Canucks <laughs> Hour. Vic Nazar filling in for Jamie Dodd with Thomas Rance. And your thoughts, 650-650 into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour. Vic Nazar filling in for Jamie Dodd with Thomas Drance live from Rogers Arena. 
Canucks Hour, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Obviously not a Canucks game day. They get a couple of days off until uh, Thursday, but a grueling, rigorous practice, but uh, also uh, the, the the rumor mill is also grueling and rigorous right now, Trance. It is, <laughs> it, it it is, is the silly season. With, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy when right you have, now. When uh, you have legitimate talk. legitimate media in multiple markets where, where you know that, you know, the two teams have discussed a certain player, right? And then the media <laughs> yeah. starts churning out their takes. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's when that's when you know. That's when you know you are in, in the silly season. And let me tell you, the silly season, oh boy, it is glorious. It is so uh, glorious. My favorite is when uh, the media members start fighting each other on on the returns for trade. <laughs> that's, that's far and away my favorite. It's like we're not negotiating. What like what are we talking about here? None of us are executing this trade. What are we doing here? It's like it's like it's like uh, it's like you know the uh, Drury Jim. We've sorted it out. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. The work has been done for you. Here's a here's a trade that both markets deem fair. Like um, no. <laughs> please, please see my Twitter thread. All right, uh, it'll it'll work out for everyone in advance. Uh, well, but wh- okay. why don't we why don't we why don't we like um why don't we take some takes? This is off the cuff, by the way. So uh, you know, why don't we take some takes that have been that have been had about various trades, right? Um, and and weigh in on whether those are good takes or bad takes. Like like for example, let me start with one. JT Miller's trade value goes down if he is not dealt before the deadline. Good take or bad take? Uh, bad take. I think that's a bad take. I'm with you. No, Why do you it's think just, it's a okay. bad take? Because, okay, let's presume we live in a world right now where the, the re- alleged offer is a first-round pick, Nils Lungfist, and Philip Hito. Okay? Just, okay. Does that sound unreasonable? Um... I mean, it. I don't like it. I don't like that okay, trade no, for the I, Canucks, saying, but it like, doesn't sound unreasonable. Let's just say that's the offer, right? Okay. Not the trade that actually happens. That's the offer. How is that trade not going to be there for you in the summer? Yeah, it, it's, it is. It's, like an, it's, it's an automatic, like, yeah, we can do that in the summer, and we'll see maybe, maybe Philadelphia gets frisky and they want to go contend again. And maybe, you know, a handful of other teams also want to get into the, the bidding war. That to me is like a we could still execute that in the summer. So I'm not looking at that and saying, oh, the value is going down. If you want JT Miller, make me say yes. That's like that's the type of offer here. When you're talking about big money deals, right, a five point two five million dollar cap hit, right, the less term available on it, the more value it has. Typically speaking, right, you get two playoff runs, but like a five point two five million, it's not like there's a ton of teams that can handle that. Um, mm-hmm. By the time, at least not in midseason. By the time you get into the off season, there's more teams that can handle that. There's more teams that can handle one year at five point two five. And by the time you get to the deadline, the last deadline for that player, basically every contender can handle that at fifty percent retained. And and at that point, you're just talking about you know five point two five million prorated for the last fifty days of the season. That's a small amount to retain cash wise for any franchise. So my view is, typically speaking. You know, unless the deal is super, super appealing, like unless you're talking about Barkley Goudreau or Blake Coleman, right? Like unless you're talking about a $2 million cap hit for two years, yeah. 
typically speaking, the less term is on a deal, the more value that player has. The value for the Canucks in making a deal, you know, proactively, let's call it proactively, the value there is having the cap certainty that you know you now have $18.5 million in cap space this coming offseason as opposed to the 13 and a half that you're currently working with. Like, it's worth locking in that flexibility, if you can, for fair value, for a team with the space to handle that cap hit, not send any long money back, um, then that makes sense. But otherwise, I, I don't think there's any way his trade value is going down or not. All right, let me present another one up for well, discussion. Just really quickly, because I do think you present something that's really interesting, is okay. the, the cap retention, right? Like, like, what if a scenario you get to next year's trade deadline, and, hey, the Canucks are middling, and here we are, they got to be sellers again. That flexibility, that option, again, that keeps options open that you, if you execute a trade now, that wouldn't be there for next next trade deadline. That's still an attractive offer to say, hey, we'll retain half for a handful of games here. It's That's that's massive. People are going to pay massive. through the nose to get a two point, what is it, two point, uh, my math sucks here, 2.6? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 2.625. Yeah. Yeah, to get that version of JT Miller, people are going to pay through the nose. Like the the offers that you get now could be the exact same a year from now at a two point six five JT Miller. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think the Canucks are going to miss an opportunity to sell high if they hold on to JT Miller beyond the deadline. I I do, however, think they will miss an opportunity to lock in cap flexibility now, and and I do think there's significant value there. Um, let's move on to another popular take around uh, around hockey circles. The price paid for Tyler Toffoli was very high by the Calgary Flames. Now let's review this for the audience so that so that we are all talking about the same thing. It's a very conservatively protected first round pick, almost sure to be a late first round pick in 2022, plus an additional fifth round pick, a prospect whose last name is Heineman, who is producing well in the SHL but is seen more of uh, as uh, more as more of a grinder than a high-end skill guy uh, around the league and is now on his third organization uh, and a conditional fourth round pick which will only convert in the event that the um, first round pick falls into the top 10 this year uh, additionally Tyler Pitlick's salary went back to Montreal okay seen around the league or at least in media circles as a huge price paid by the Calgary Flames did Tyler Toffoli's, uh, the acquisition cost of Tyler Toffoli set a high market for sellers? Uh, Randy and I talked about this on the, the People Show, coming up at 1 o'clock, by the way. It's, no, not at all. It's like, I think you see the graphic, and you just see one name of Tyler Toffoli, and then four bullet points on the other side, and you think, whoa, what a trade! It's like, no, you do, you do that every time. You, if you're Calgary, it's like, yeah. It, it's, it's one of those ones where it's like, you hang up quickly. It's like, yeah, okay, hang on, just let me get Gary Bettman on the call. And it's like, yeah, you hang up, and... And, and suddenly, you're talking to the league office, and it's like, hey, this is what we have. It's, it's yeah. not that big of a price at all. Don't let them off the line. I, I agree with you. And, and here's the other thing about Toffoli, right? So, typically speaking, value goes up as term goes down, right, on, on the trade market. However, in Toffoli's case, right, you're talking about a contract signed during the depths of the business uncertainty from COVID-19. Right, you're talking about the off season of 2020 when there were deals and steals, frankly, to be had. So long as you didn't sign Braden Holpe and, and Jake Vertanen and, and trade for Nagemann, there were deals to be had, and the Montreal Canadiens got a steal 
on that Tyler Toffoli contract. You're talking about a really good top six forward for $4.25 million signed through this year and the next two. And for the Flames, who are looking at negotiations with Andrew Mangiapane, Matthew Kachuk, and pending UFA, Johnny Gaudreau, locking in a good top six forward at 4.25 for this year and the next two gives you some flex as you approach a really difficult and uncertain offseason, right? He's a win-now piece for them, but he's also an insurance policy piece for them uh, two years down the line. It looks like a player, a prospect, and a and a draft pick, and I guess it is. But Tyler Pitlick's value in this deal is that you're just sending money out to make it work for you. Like, that's a, that's a money-out deal. That's not losing a player of value to the Calgary Flames. That's just sending money out by the Calgary Flames. It's not really a player in the mold that uh, that the type of player that the Canucks are hoping to get back for JT Miller would be, right? Um, the the prospect, good prospect, but probably a B-minus prospect, right? Probably a middle six if he hits, uh, more likely a bottom six. And then you're looking at a, at a highly protected first and an additional fifth-round pick, which, you know, is, is not a huge deal for, for a team that's going for it. I don't think the Tyler Toffoli price was big, and... And I think this is really important. I don't think it's a market setter in any way for JT Miller for, for the following reasons. One, JT Miller is seen as a star level piece, right? 36th among NHL uh, players in scoring over the past four years, leading his team in scoring, leading his team in ice time. Tyler Toffoli is seen as a very good supporting piece. That's a huge difference in terms of, of, of value acquired. Uh, I'd add additionally that, um, the well sorry that's the main one the the other side of it though the one area that i do think it impacts potentially the canucks or or at least it should if they are willing to play their cards in this way but i've been going on and on about the prime asset that i think the canucks should pursue in the event that they decide to trade one of their you know big ticket star level forwards uh, ahead of the deadline and and it's a 2022 draft pick that's protected in some manner that you feel is possible to convert to 2023 unprotected, right? Like what this team, what this franchise needs more than anything else, to be totally honest with you, is a lottery win. It, it is a lottery win. And yet when you have Demko, it's really hard to tank, right? Like you can't, it's really hard to be as bad as some teams will be next season when you have a goalie who's just throwing fireballs um, every game he seems to start. And so you know, I think finding a team to bet against uh, in a lot of ways and a pick that could convert unprotected to 2023 and then maybe you get lucky, that to me is like the prime asset you should be chasing. And and before anyone says that's pie in the sky, like the Montreal Canadiens are the worst team in hockey. They traded their first-round pick. They traded their first-round pick before this season. Teams do this way more frequently than people do. Way realize. more frequently. The Chicago Blackhawks traded their first-round pick. The yeah. Chicago Blackhawks, they're putrid. They are terrible. Brandon Hagel's their best player. Brandon Hagel. I like Brandon Hagel, but he shouldn't be your best player. Come on. So finding that team, betting on them to crater before they do, that is like the number one asset you should get. And because Toffoli gained uh, an asset, uh, a first-round pick protected in a, in a certain manner that makes it very unlikely to convert to 2023, but nonetheless, I do think that that's one area that, that if I'm, I'm in the Canucks' shoes – I'm insisting, like insisting, that that be um, that that be included, 
and and saying, hey, the market got set with the Toffoli deal. Like that's the one part that I'm insisting Toffoli uh, impacts in terms of uh, JT Miller's trade value. You got any? You got well, any recent takes that you want to judge as good or bad? Well, uh, on the the, the Toffoli trade is. Yeah. You know, Montreal is probably comfortable with the trade because, hey, look, obviously they made it. But their version of winning the trade is Emil Heinemann suddenly becoming a player. Like, it'll take a couple of years to materialize. But, hey, in 2025, they can look back and say, okay, he's in the lineup. We won that trade. You do that version. Like, Like, what's the hidden upside in a JT Miller trade? It's not the second piece. It's the third piece, right? It's It's the extra piece. So you need another premium asset to come in. And then your third one can kind of be your frisky upside. Hey, we kind of like this player. We think he'd be better. And we'll take a gamble on this guy. But it's the third piece that we're getting in this trade. We want to be comfortable with the first two pieces. It's the third one where we think we can make up our hidden value. And for what you're saying there, I already want a first-round pick. I already want a prospect. And it's that extra player. That's that's like, Who's the better version of Mule Heinemann that you can get in a JT Miller trade? But for what you're saying, if you want to create hidden value elsewhere too, the hidden value would be punt on this year's draft, get a for unprotected first down the road. That's, like, that's how you make yeah. up value in trades. Yeah, see, I, I kind of disagree in that I think the sneaky value for the Canucks in any trade involving whether what, whatever big-ticket piece you want to discuss. Obviously, we've we've focused mostly on JT Miller, but, um, you know, there's other guys who have been linked mm-hmm. to the trade market over the course of the past month. Any of those guys, I think the key to winning that deal from a Canucks perspective is not taking money back that extends beyond the season. For me, that's the whole ball game. Um, you know... I actually like the idea of going and getting draft picks more than I like the idea of gambling on t- players in that 20 to 25 age range. And I know tw- that's sort of what the Canucks have been asking for in trades. We reported it last week. Dolly Wall and I at The Athletic uh, really leaned into it with a piece at The Athletic yesterday, um, you know, looking at 10 potential targets between the ages of 20 and 25. But for me, the analogy that I'd, I'd like to present you is um, – Getting a player aged 20 to 25 is is effectively like getting a gift card, right? It's like, it's good. You can get something you want, maybe, right? But you're sort of limited in where you can spend it. You can only spend it in one place. Getting draft picks, and I know the reaction when, when a team gets draft picks is, what's the value of that four or five years down the line? Like, if you're lucky, it might hit. That's the wrong way to look at draft pick asset capital, right? Draft picks are the equivalent of cold, hard cash. Cold, hard cash. Draft picks give you the opportunity to take advantage on the trade market of situations that teams occasionally find themselves in. And to give you some real-life examples from the past couple years, Devon Taves for two second-round picks, right? Like, you want to be positioned to be like, we can afford to take on $4 million in salary, and we'll give you two picks to get this really good player who could be even better you know, in our system or in our market than he was for you. Another good example is Pavel Busnevich, a trade the Rangers just made where the St. Louis Blues were well positioned with, yes, they had a bottom six, uh, like a, a unique profile bottom six player to shop in that deal, but also a second round pick. Uh, they were able to effectively steal Pavel Busnevich uh, from the New York Rangers uh, who wanted to move him for reasons that sort of continue to um, confuse me. So, Toughness, baby. Toughness. I know. It's ridiculous. Anyway, (laughs) those are the types of 
positions that you can capitalize on in the event that you have cold hard cash. And for a team with as many needs as the Canucks have, like gift cards are good, gift cards are good, but cold hard cash is way better. That to me would be a huge priority for this organization or should be a huge priority as they go deadline shopping, as it were, as a seller, (laughs) as they go deadline selling in the event they go deadline selling over the next five weeks. Do you have any takes, by the way? Do you have any trade takes? I was just going to say, I just learned that uh, you're a big uh, cash at Christmas guy, not a gift card guy. So oh, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, the gift card's great, but it's like, oh, Starbucks. Like, yay. You know, like. Can't, 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 it's not on my route money. to work. I've got to go out of my way to, to use this gift card. It's brutal. No, no one has it's ever brutal. opened a gift card and said to themselves while opening it, gift card, gift card, gift card. <laughs> you know, that's it's, never happened. It's so impersonal. It's, it's the one thing. I just cross people off my, my life list if they give me a gift card. I was like, all right, I clearly don't matter to you if you're giving me a gift card. At all. Exactly. It's like, fine. no one wants uh, gift unless, cards. Cold, unless hard it's cash. Like, a, like, a, uh, like a Visa or MasterCard gift card. I, I can accept those ones. Sure. Yeah, at least agreed. That's, that's cash. But, yeah, if, if you're giving me something specific, it's... Uh, it's cash in uh, another uh, form. It's cash in yeah. another form. But, but it's still uh, cash. It's, first... First trait takes for me, I think, look, we're getting caught up in this. Well, Miller's got to go and Brock has got to go. To me, like, job one here. Good take, bad take, uh, Drance. Uh, eliminate the, inefic- the inefficient money first. That, that should be Ooh. job one on this roster right now. And, and wow. Randy and I are, are, are going to be talking about this more uh, in the People Show coming up. But, like, there is $17.4 million, and I think you can map out the five candidates here. There's $17.4 million that just does not matter on this roster. And I I said this yesterday because it was Valentine's Day. I like a lot of the players. I actually do. But I don't love them. I don't love them. Like, I I like Tyler Myers more than the market. But I understand that he has to do a lot of work to live up to $6 million on a night-in, night-out basis. (laughs) But you add up the the $17.4 million, you can like some of the players. But, like, job one is to get rid of this money first. And it's, it's a difficult task, don't get me wrong, and you might have to incentivize some teams with salary retention and other things, but job one should be eliminate the waste before you start exploring the, the big ticket items of, hey, Miller and Brock and all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, I disagree with you. So, so I actually disagree with you here. I think at the end of the day, if you're eliminating some of that money, the best way to do it is going to be to either – do a reverse OEL, by which I mean you take worse short-term money for better um, long-term money, right? That's like you just shorten the amount of time it's going to take to hurdle the bad money. You do a reverse OEL trade with with some of those however, pieces. Yeah, like however you got to do it. Like I it, no, no, but that's that's about... one way of doing it. Or the other way is you do a series of cash in, cash out deals, which is more in the Rutherford template, right? You do a series yeah. of cash in, cash out deals for players that are better fits for you than the players that you have on those inefficient deals. And for me, for me, the most realistic way of doing it, considering everything we know about this organization and and the patience level that it's traditionally had, um, those are money in, money out deals, and those can be done over a longer horizon. For me, the s- step one is because my cold hard cash gift cards analogy only works if you have cap flexibility. Like part of why you can take on a Busnevich or you can trade for a Devon Taves is that you have the money to handle it and the other team doesn't. You have to be positioned to do, you know, and we see these deals all the time. Brendan Dillon to the Winnipeg Jets, uh, Nate, Nate Schmidt, frankly, to both the Canucks and then the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, JT Miller to the Canucks, frankly. 
right? Those are those deals are enabled because one team has cap space and the other doesn't. And so right now the Canucks don't have cap space. Like they don't have flexibility. And without that, you don't have the avenues to improve. Uh, without additional draft cap uh, draft pick capital, you don't have the avenues to improve. Without a solid prospect system, you don't have avenues to improve. This team has zero avenues to improve. For me, aside from beginning to build that out, right? And you build that out by making deals for really good players first that free up cap space and bring in assets. It's why, for me, any deal the Canucks make, like step one, I like Philip Cheadle, for example. I just don't think he makes sense in any trade involving one of the Canucks' best players because the Canucks need the flexibility. The key thing to obtain, in my view, is that flexibility in addition to the to the assets to make it count quickly. Like, to make it count so that you're not just making draft picks and crossing your fingers and hoping you get a player in three years. Although, doing that a few times is well worth doing. Uh, you know, that the primary purpose of these draft picks, in my view, is to give yourself the avenues that you require to improve this team. And, and right now, I just see all those avenues blockaded for this club. That, to me, is the logic of making some of those deals. Beck Nazar and Thomas Rance, a uh, fun hour. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be back tomorrow, but nevertheless, uh, I enjoyed well, I, the single hour. Uh, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed it too, man. Thank you for thank you for <laughs> guesting again on Canucks yeah. Hour. Come back anytime. Anytime you're able. Glad to. Glad to. Uh, Jamie Dodd <laughs> will be back soon enough. Uh, either way, Thomas Rance will be back tomorrow on another non-Canucks game day as they get set for a game on Thursday in San Jose and... I don't foresee any trades being done by tomorrow morning, uh, Drance, but uh, hey, you never know. You, you, you might have something to talk about tomorrow. Um, uh, as blow well up, as up, blow up my evening. Blow up my evening, <laughs> NHL. Let's go. Big <laughs> uh, Nassar, Thomas Rance, we got to run here. People Show, myself and Randy Panda coming up next here on the Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.